the time we get to Gettysburg, Lee has, for one thing, managed to avoid McClellan's effort to destroy him in Maryland. I mean, technically speaking, the Battle of Antietam is a, is a Union victory, but it doesn't seem that way because what people expected a Union victory was going to be was George McClellan closing in and destroying Lee's army. That doesn't happen. An excerpt from today's guest, whose latest book many are calling the definitive biography of Robert E. Lee. Dr. Alan Gelzo is here, and I'll speak with him after this break. This is Point of the Spirit. Welcome back. I'm Robert Child. Today's returning guest is Senior Research Scholar at the Council of the Humanities at Princeton. He is the author of several books about the Civil War and early 19th century American history. He has been the recipient of the Lincoln Prize three times, the Guggenheim Lehrman Prize for Military History, and many other honors. His book is called Robert E. Lee, A Life. It came out yesterday, and Dr. Alan Gelzo joins us now. Alan, welcome back to the show. Well, it's good to be back again, Rob. Let's get back into speaking more about his Civil War career. He had a reputation, obviously, going into the Civil War, and he knew a lot of the Union generals. What were the opinions of the generals to Robert E. Lee? Um, The pre-war army, of course, was uh, a very small army, approximately 16,000 men all told, uh, officers and, uh, and enlisted. And as a small, relatively small cadre, they knew each other. They had been at West Point together. Um, A number of them had been on campaign together in Mexico. So a lot of them knew each other and knew stories about the others and had an estimate of what the others were like. They were not strangers. Uh, Union general reactions, though, to Lee being in command were surprising because at first the reaction almost bordered on contempt. Uh, Lee was given as an initial command the oversight of the West Virginia campaign of the late summer and fall of 1861. Western Virginia had never been enthused about joining the rest of the Commonwealth of Virginia in secession. And no sooner does Virginia announce its secession and its joining of the Confederate states than the westernmost counties decide that they're going to go their own way. Uh, in, a, in effect, they are going to secede from secession. And they organize a provisional government of Virginia, which at first, they insist, is the legitimate government of Virginia. And they are prepared to resist uh, the Confederacy and to assist them. Uh, Union forces from Ohio under George McClellan cross the Ohio River into Western Virginia and establish Union control over a great deal of what is now the modern day state of West Virginia. Robert E. Lee was sent by Jefferson Davis to deal with that, and he was not successful. In large measure, he was not successful because the terrain was difficult. The soldiers that he had to command were untrained and of dubious quality and the officers that he had to cope with were uncooperative and all the more so because the actual lines of authority were not clear jefferson davis sent him to western virginia to give oversight to the situation that was not quite the same thing as command authority to get people to work together and they didn't so his 
initial campaign uh, is not a terribly successful one. And when in 1862, after the wounding of Joe Johnston, uh, at the end of, of May 1862 at Seven Pines on the Peninsula Campaign, it is announced by Jefferson Davis that Johnston will be succeeded by Robert E. Lee. The first response on the part of the opposite number, which in this case, again, is George McClellan commanding the Army of the Potomac. Right. Now, McClellan's first response is, oh, we don't really have too much to worry about from Lee. Lee's very timid. Uh, he will not do anything particularly spectacular. Oh, what a mistake that was. Uh, Lee instead turns into a fireball of aggressiveness, uh, pushes McClellan away from Richmond, away from the Chickahominy River crossings, and forces McClellan to abandon his base at White House on the Pamunkey River, which curiously enough was an old it was an old Custis Lee property uh, and forces McClellan to regroup around Harrison's landing on the James River. Uh, by this point, it's clear that McClellan has the scare on him and McClellan is bombarding Washington with demands for reinforcements and accusations that Washington is not supporting him. Uh, in fact, the, the truth is Washington was not really supporting him. Washington had already given up in, uh, on, on George McClellan, and President Lincoln would probably have been happy to have relieved McClellan of command on the spot had it not been for the fact that McClellan enjoyed such commanding loyalty in the Army of the Potomac. Uh, what Lincoln does instead is to create an alternative army in northern Virginia called the Army of Virginia, which he puts under the command of John Pope. Pope's response to Lee is actually not all that much different from McClellan's. He immediately stages a retreat uh, from an advanced position he'd taken uh, at the Rappahannock River, uh, pulls back into northern Virginia, uh, hopes he can isolate one part of Lee's army at the Old Manassas battlefield, only to find himself caught in the jaws of Lee's army and suffers one of the most embarrassing and humiliating defeats a Union army suffers in the Civil War. After that, Robert E. Lee can seem to do no wrong. And by the time we get to Gettysburg, Lee has, for one thing, managed to avoid McClellan's effort to destroy him in Maryland. I mean, technically speaking, the Battle of Antietam is a, is a Union victory. Right. But it doesn't seem that way, because what people expected a Union victory was going to be was George McClellan closing in and destroying Lee's army. That doesn't happen. Right. Then comes Fredericksburg, then comes Chancellorsville. By the time you get to Gettysburg, Union generals and Union soldiers, the rank and file, almost believe that Lee is invincible. And so, for that matter, do Lee's own soldiers. They have begun to refer to him as Uncle Robert, as Marse Robert. Marsh Robert, that's an interesting piece of terminology, because what you're hearing these Confederate soldiers doing is adopting the dialect of the slave. They're saying that their relationship to Robert E. Lee is similar to the relationship of a slave at home to a white man, to a white slave owner. And that 
for these soldiers in the Army of Northern Virginia who believe that they are the paladins of white supremacy, for them to adopt that terminology, Mars Robert, that reveals an awful lot about how high their opinion is of Robert E. Lee. When the Army marches, the Army of Northern Virginia marches to Gettysburg, the, the soldier letters are quite frank in their belief that the army's morale has never been so high confidence in lee is stratospheric and all they're simply going to do is wait around in pennsylvania for an opportunity to administer the coup de gras to the army of the potomac and bring the civil war to a successful conclusion we'll be back to the conversation after this quick break i'm robert child we've got some great guests coming up in october his latest military history book is called The Bronze Lies, Shattering the Myth of Spartan Warrior Supremacy. And Mike Cole joins us now. The, this myth of Spartan greatness is all about the idea that they never ran from a fight, they never lost a battle, they never surrendered. Right. You know, it's all nonsense. And let's make a scorecard and narrate that scorecard. And that became the core idea behind the book. And when I pitched it to Osprey, they were like, that's awesome, go write it. His book is called Finding the Lost Battalion beyond the rumors, myths, and legends of America's famous World War I epic. And Robert Laplander joins us now. The first challenge that they had to overcome was that we had an American army that was untested. When we got into the war at the beginning, you know, we only had 250,000 standing troops, Army National Guard and Marine Corps. 19 months later, we had 4.5 million men in uniform. That's an increase of 1,700% in 19 months. His book is called The Reckoning, The Defeat of Army Group South, 1944. And all the way from Scotland, Britt Vitar joins us now. Hitler had certainly invaded the Soviet Union with the ex very explicit intention of this being a very different sort of war. He explicitly stated that the urban population of the Soviet Union would be regarded as surplus and would simply have to die in order to release sufficient agricultural produce to feed Germany and Central Europe. I hope you can join me for these guests and more every Wednesday morning, Point of the Spear. Now back to my conversation with Dr. Alan Gelzo. The book was not an easy one to write, and for a number of reasons. Lee's papers are scattered all over the country. Are they? You know, if you want to if you want to write about Grant, you can go to the 27 volumes of the papers of Ulysses Grant that John Simon and John Marzalak have edited. It's easy to get at. That made Ron Chernow. That made Ron Chernow's life very substantially easier. You know, 27, you've got all 27 volumes there. Plus Jefferson Davis. Yeah. 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 Jefferson Davis, likewise. You, um, uh, many other uh Civil War figures, yeah, collected paper. Abraham Lincoln collected works. No problem. You can go, go right to those volumes. And it's very compact. Robert E. Lee, not so. Lee was a compulsive letter writer, probably wrote something like 8,000 letters in his life. But they're scattered in penny packets from one archive to another, literally from coast to coast. I, I have worked with stuff from the Morgan Library all the way to the Huntington Library out in San Marino. Uh, and, and it seems like almost all points in between. So tracking down Lee letters is, it, it's a painstaking process made all the more so by the fact that a lot of them are still in private hands. 
it's, it really was a particularly maddening uh, prospect tracking down letter after letter after letter. I created a calendar of Lee letters. Oh, wow. Um, and no joke. Um, well, this calendar of Lee letters, I would have date of the letter, to whom it was written, a one line description of the contents. Uh, and uh, each page would be one line and the whole thing of one line entries, 110 pages oh. by the time I was done. Seriously, this is why Lee biography has been surprisingly thin. Yeah. Um, Douglas Southall Freeman in those four volumes, uh, Freeman spent 22 years assembling the material there but he had the entire staff of the richmond times dispatch to send off and find things which right. which they did probably the, the most interesting lee biographies were the ones by michael fellman and alan nolan but even they were really commentaries on mm -hmm. freeman uh, the only other really original biography is one that hard, you hardly ever hear about and that is a two-volume biography by margaret sanborn which was published in the mid 1960s. Oh, okay. It's a very good biography. A lot of work went into it. So, yeah, I think you're right. Lee, in a, in a sense, they did me a favor, or Lee did me a favor by making the hurdles so high. Yeah. Um, the hurdles being as high as they are probably means there won't be a big rush of more <laughs> Lee biographies. Yeah, but that's, yeah, it would, the whole process was infinitely more of a challenge than I had imagined when I set out on this project back in 2014. What I want to close with is his Lee's post-war legacy, which isn't, it's difficult to find information about. And since your biography is about his whole life, did he, uh, was he welcomed back into the country or did he live alone? What was, what's his post-war legacy? Lee lives for five years after the surrender at Appomattox. And in a lot of places, that's treated as kind of a, an afterthought, almost an appendix to the man's life, which I think is a big mistake. I mean, for one thing, it's a surprise that in, the, in late August and early September, 1865, he accepts the proposition of this little college in the upper Shenandoah Valley in Lexington, Virginia, Washington College. He accepts their invitation to become their president. I mean, this is so unlikely. It's unlikely for two reasons. One is Robert E. Lee never enjoyed being an educator. He had served a stint as superintendent at West Point in the 1850s and was pretty miserable through most of it. He, he said at one point that he really did not have a gift for communicating information in the classroom. And he's probably, he was probably correct in that self-estimate. So it, it, it's a surprise then to see him accepting this job. Just as much a surprise is that he accepts it at this tiny institution, which almost winked out under the pressure of the Civil War in a place far removed from the circumstances he was most used to, you know, the, the Potomac Estuary, the Northern Neck. I mean, he's going to the Upper Shenandoah. He's going, 
he's he's going to basically to Stonewall Jackson's old neighborhood, hmm. which is a lot of very raw boned, upright, stiff necked Scots Irish Presbyterians, which is a totally different environment from anything that Lee has occupied. Why does he do it? Well, in large measure, I think he wants to get away. Remember, at the end of the war, he is indicted for treason. And the only thing that's protecting him is the parole, which was issued to him and the rest of his army at Appomattox. Well, under the terms of the parole, he doesn't feel he can leave Virginia. So what does he do? He's going to find a place in Virginia as far removed from Washington, D.C. as he can get and plant himself there. And that's what he does. Now, the funny thing is, people congratulated the trustees of Washington College for landing Robert E. Lee as their president. And their congratulations all run in terms of he'll be a great figurehead. He'll look wonderful on the letterhead. Uh, don't let him don't let him uh, waste his time doing too much. <laughs> oh, my, were they wrong? Uh, they became the trustees became the figureheads. Lee takes over Washington College. The same way he took over the Army of Northern Virginia. He takes over the curriculum. He takes over the faculty. He takes over fundraising. He rebuilds all of these. He builds a new curriculum. I mean, this was a college that taught straight up classics, you know, Greek and Latin, the whole, the whole early 19th century uh, curriculum. He, th he, he basically sets that aside. He's going to create a modern vocational curriculum. Uh, he's going to hire a new faculty and he's going to bring in money. Oh, my goodness, does this man shake the apple tree? Wow. You would never have suspected Robert E. Lee had gifts for cultivating donors, but he did. And he got money pouring in there to the point where after just three years in the presidency, Washington College has paid off all of its Civil War era debts. It has acquired an endowment of a quarter of a million dollars, which is a lot of moolah in those days. Yeah. And he has built a new faculty and attracted almost 400 students to the college. That's that's larger than the University of Virginia. That is a miracle. And I think it's safe to say that uh, among all the successes you can attribute to Robert E. Lee in his life, nothing matches the success he enjoyed as president of Washington College. And in some respects, Rob, I think he actually spent the happiest five years of his life as president of Washington College. And largely because there he was able to realize those three goals that I talked about in our previous interview, independence, security, and, and above all, being able to run things according to his own definition of perfection without with any kind of let or hindrance from anybody interfering. So I, I think he really is happier there. He doesn't, and this is a curious thing, he doesn't do something that Ulysses Grant does. When Ulysses Grant becomes president of the United States, he brings all of his old officers around with him. His old chief of staff, John Rawlins, um, his, his old military secretary, Eli Parker. He makes uh, William Tecumseh Sherman uh, general uh, in chief of uh, the United States Army. Lee does not bring his old officers to Washington College. Uh, he corresponds with some of them. He stays in touch with uh, a little bit with Walter Taylor and Charles Marshall, uh, his uh, staffers. Uh, he corresponds a little bit with James Longstreet. 
but he never sponsors reunions. He never brings his old officers or staff together to serve him. It's as though he, it's not, it's not that he's lost interest in them. It's that he really is looking beyond that and just does not feel the urge that Grant did to surround himself with the familiar figures of the wartime past. As you say, he wanted to get away from it. And yeah, yeah. Make a break. The book is called Robert E. Lee, A Life. Alan, congratulations on this success. It's well, thank you. Thank you, Rob. It's out now, so I invite people to go enjoy the pleasure of reading Robert E. Lee, A Life. Thank you again, Alan, for being here. You bet. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, my guest will be author and World War I expert Robert Laplander. The first challenge that they had to overcome was that we had an American army that was untested. When we got into the war at the beginning, you know, we only had 250,000 standing troops, Army National Guard and Marine Corps. 19 months later, we had 4.5 million men in uniform. That's an increase of 1,700% in 19 months. That's next time. And if you like what you hear, please share us on social media and follow me on Twitter at Rob Child. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from Audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.